0: Welcome to another UCTV. TV podcast presented by University of California Television.
1: Welcome to the oh. Can you hear me?
2: No. <clears> These <throat> two microphone for the BA system. Just, this one just recording. So to not go, does not go to the last speaker. This is really cool. Okay.
1: Now can everyone hear me? Okay. Right. Uh, welcome to the uh, Jefferson Lectures. Uh, my name is Leon Litwack. I'm the Department of History at, uh, at Berkeley. Uh, the Jefferson uh, Memorial Fund was established in 1944 under the will of Elizabeth Bonestell, in the name of herself and her husband Cutler Bonestell, for support of the Jefferson Memorial Lectures, uh, given by invited scholars on subjects appropriate to the study and promotion of American democracy. The members of the Jefferson Lectures Committee, Professor Thomas Leonard, Journalism Chair, Professor Robin Einhorn the History Department, Professor Robert Kagan, Political Science, Professor Nelson Poulsby, Political Science, Professor Harry Scheiber, Law. The 1998 Jefferson Lecture is Eric Foner on the Origins of American Freedom. We've known each other for some 30, 35 plus years, I valued Eric as a friend and colleague. When I first uh, met him, I was curious about uh, meeting Philip Foner's nephew, but to a new generation of history students, I find myself identifying Philip Foner as Eric Foner's uncle. Eric Foner is DeWitt Clinton Professor of American History at Columbia University. He was born in New York City, was educated in the public schools in Long Island, and at Columbia University, where he completed his PhD under the direction of Richard Hofstadter. He's also visited a number of institutions, including Cambridge, England, where he was the Pitt Professor, Oxford, England, where he served as the Harmsworth Professor of American History. Moscow State University, where he was the, a Fulbright professor, and in 1979, University of California at Berkeley, where he distinguished himself in the classroom and on the softball diamond, a solid 450 power hitter and a flawless outfielder. Eric Foner has profoundly influenced the ways in which we think about American history. The sensitivity and the intellectual sophistication with which he handled in free soil, free labor, free men, such a varied, diverse, and complex group as the Republicans of the 1850s testified to the extraordinary promise of this young scholar. 1976 was an appropriate year for his second book, Tom Paine and Revolutionary America. With the publication of Nothing But Freedom and Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution, he gave us two pivotal and compelling works on emancipation and the unique experiment in biracial democratic government in the post-Civil War South. At the outset of that project, Foner envisioned a synthesis which would incorporate the then fragmented social economic Political and intellectual components of reconstruction, at the same time, at the same time, placed black Southerners at the center of this critical historical drama. He succeeded admirably. His command of the sources was extraordinary, and the story had never been told with such clarity, power, insight and breadth of vision. Foner's conclusion that Reconstruction transformed the lives and aspirations of black Southerners, as he said, in ways unmeasurable by statistics, and in the realms far beyond the realm of the law, has never been more persuasively argued or more fully documented. And the contrast between the silence that greeted W.E.B. Du Bois's path breaking revisionism in black Reconstruction in 1935 and the critical acclaim lavished on Eric Foner's Reconstruction more than half a century later, including the Bancroft and Parkman Prizes, testified to significant changes in scholarly attitudes. Indeed, as I recall, both Eric and I, in many ways, came to emancipation and reconstruction from the same source. As kids, we read Howard Fast's Freedom Road. Eric Foner And I'd like to emphasize this point. Eric Foner cares deeply about how we conceptualize the past and about how we teach and communicate history to a larger public. He writes frequently for a variety of publications on a number of subjects. And I am constantly impressed with the quality, indeed, the quantity, of his public work, not only his major books, but the articles, the reviews the op-ed piece as he manages to turn out. He's in fact tireless in his efforts not only to bring history to a larger public, but to make certain the history the public reads and views on the screen is accurate and compelling. That might mean calling attention to the New York Times' abuse of the term carpetbagger. It might mean correcting President Reagan on his comparison of the Nicaraguan Contras to our founding fathers. It would include a more recent review of the film Amistad. It would also include taking on and indeed vanquishing Lynn Cheney and Pat Buchanan on crossfire over history standards. Or curating two extraordinary museum exhibits, A House Divided, America in the Age of Lincoln at the Chicago Historical Society, and America's Reconstruction, a traveling exhibition originating at the Virginia Historical Society. But Eric carried his commitment to public history to still another level. When after visiting Disneyland with his daughter Daria, he challenged the mighty Disney Corporation to clean up its Lincoln Act. That is the platitudes mouthed by the animatronic Abraham Lincoln that said really more about the 1950s than about the 1850s. Well, Disney not only promised a revised Lincoln, but asked Eric to rewrite the presentation in the Hall of Presidents at Orlando's Disneyland. Indeed, his five-minute history of the United States preceding the robot presidents (laughs) may be, may be the most widely heard history in America today. He's also found time to serve his profession. He was president of the Organization of American Historians from 1993 to 1994, and he's been nominated for the presidency of the American Historical Association. He was also elected in 1989 to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. The best history deepens sensibilities, makes a difference in how people conceptualize and think about and feel the past. Eric Foner has made a substantial difference. He has forced his readers and his students to see and feel the past in ways that may be genuinely disturbing. And through his books and exhibits, he has brought into our historical consciousness the perceptions and experiences of people ordinarily left outside the framework of history. Eric Foner is that rare combination a people's historian and a historian's historian. And that says a great deal, I think, about our Jefferson lecture today, Eric Foner.
3: Well, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be back here at Berkeley because as Leon said, I did teach here as a visiting professor quite a while ago. Um, it's a pleasure to be introduced by my good friend Leon Litwack and I hope uh, you can take some of what he said with a bit of a grain of salt, especially my batting average. And, um, it's a great honor to be invited here to give this very distinguished, uh, to be part of this very distinguished series of Jefferson Lectures. And I wanna thank those who invited me here, uh, Tom Leonard and the others on the committee and uh, people in the Dean's office, uh, Ms. Malongo and others who have arranged my visit. So it's, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I will talk, but after my lecture I'd be delighted for a while to answer any questions or hear any comments uh, anyone may say, but before I begin, I should just—I'll uh, let you in on a little uh, secret, which has something to do with these Jefferson Lectures. As long as you promise not to tell anybody, um, as Leon mentioned, I am going to be—I uh, was nominated to run for president of the American Historical Association. Which election will take place in the fall? Leon and I have both been president of the Organization of American Historians. That group operates on the very pleasant principle that there's only one candidate for president. So both of us won in landslides. The AHA has this quaint habit of thinking there should be a choice in for president, and um, the secret is that the. The candidate I'll be running against is the other Jefferson lecturer who will be here three weeks from now, Gordon Wood. (laughs) So you will have a chance, so to speak, to have a kind of a Lincoln-Douglas debate between the two of us at three weeks apart. Uh, Although actually, I think Gordon and I share uh, many more uh, ideas in common than Lincoln and Douglas did back in the uh, 1850s. But my my subject today is the origins of American freedom. And as Americans, we all know that there is no idea more fundamental to our sense of ourselves as individuals and as a nation uh, than freedom. The ideal of freedom is deeply embedded in the documentary record of our history and the language of our everyday life. The Declaration of Independence lists liberty among mankind's inalienable rights. The Constitution's purpose is to secure the blessings of liberty. The United States fought the Civil War to bring about a new birth of freedom. It fought World War II for the four freedoms. It fought the Cold War to defend the free world. And Americans' love of liberty has been represented throughout our history by liberty polls, liberty caps, statues of liberty. It's been acted out by burning stamps and burning draft cards, running away from slavery, and demonstrating for the right to vote. Ralph Bunch, the great educator and statesman wrote in 1940, he said, every man in the street, white, black, red, or yellow, knows that this is the land of the free and the cradle of liberty. Freedom has also provided the most popular master narrative for accounts of our past, from textbooks to with titles like land of the free to multi-volume accounts of the unfolding of the idea of freedom on the North American continent. Our story, declared the cultural critic Alan Bloom, is the majestic and triumphant march of two principles, freedom and equality. Now works based on that theme, while valuable in situating the idea of freedom in historical experience, too often tend to give it a fixed definition and then trace how this has been worked out over time. Generally, they ground our American freedom in ideas that have not changed essentially since the ancient world, or in forms of constitutional government and civil and political liberty inherited from England and institutionalized by the founding fathers. In effect, these historians drop a plumb line into the past, seeking the origins of one or another current definition of freedom, while excluding numerous meanings that don't seem to to, to meet the predetermined criteria. This approach too often fails to recognize how dissenting voices and rejected positions and disparaged theories have also played a crucial role in shaping the meaning of freedom in this country. Now my talk today derives from a forthcoming book that, I will, that will be published in the fall called The Story of American Freedom. And my literary agent would be quite annoyed if I didn't add everyone should go out and buy this book when it appears. Uh, this is a history of the idea of freedom in the United States from the revolution to the present, right up to the internet and what freedom means there. In that book, in this book, uh, the history of what the historian Carl Becker called this magic but elusive word, freedom, is not a set of timeless categories or an evolutionary narrative toward a preordained goal, but a history of debates, disagreements, and social conflicts. Rather than seeing freedom as a fixed or predetermined concept, I view it as what philosophers call, quote, an essentially contested idea. That is one that by its very nature is the subject of profound disagreement. Now, freedom is the oldest of our cliches and the most modern of aspirations. At various times in our history, it has served as a justification for the status quo and as a protest ideal freedom helps to bind our culture together everybody here believes in freedom and exposes the contradictions between what america claims to be and what it actually is my approach to the history of freedom centers on three interrelated topics or themes the first is the debates and battles over the meaning of freedom what people actually understand it to mean the second is disagreements over the social conditions of freedom, that is what institutions, what conditions need to exist to make freedom possible. And the third issue is the boundaries of freedom, that is who is entitled to enjoy American freedom, however uh, we define it. Now, as Leon indicated a little bit, freedom and struggles to define its meaning have long been central to my own work as a historian. My first published article, and Leon didn't mention, because this is going back so long, but I was recalling to him that when I was an undergraduate, I wrote a letter to Professor Litwack when his first book had appeared, uh, asking for some advice on seeking sources. uh, And he very generously replied, this was back in 1962, this led eventually to my first public art, published article, which concerned the Free Soil Party, and three of my previous books have had the word "free" or "freedom" in the titles. But this project, the story of American freedom, has the effect of moving much of my research into the twentieth century, which I have heretofore ignored. I do this reluctantly because I don't approve of the twentieth century, but. Um, Now that the 20th century is nearly as long as the 19th century was, I feel I probably ought to take notice of it. The story of American freedom has a rich and varied cast of characters, from Thomas Jefferson to Victoria Woodhull, from Franklin D. Roosevelt to former slaves seeking to breathe substantive meaning into emancipation after the Civil War. Today, however, in keeping with the title of these lectures, uh, I will focus on the era of the American Revolution, when freedom took on many elements of its distinctively American definition. And many elements, of this, many elements of what I talk about of this story will be familiar, I think, but I hope that viewing them with freedom as the central concern will illuminate this history in new and interesting ways. So, American freedom was born in revolution, the American Revolution. During the struggle for independence, inherited ideas about liberty were transformed and new ones emerged, and the definition of those entitled to enjoy what the Constitution calls the blessings of liberty, those boundaries were challenged and extended. The revolution bequeathed to future generations an enduring but contradictory legacy. Its vision of the new nation as an asylum for freedom in a world overrun by oppression resonates in our culture down to this day. But the United States, a nation conceived in liberty, harbored, as we know, a rapidly growing slave population, thus belying the Founding Fathers' confident affirmation of freedom as a universal human birthright. Freedom was guaranteed to many Americans and cruelly denied to many others. Now, liberty or freedom, and I should say, uh, in our language, liberty and freedom are interchangeable. Uh, to preempt the question, which I'm always asked when I talk about this, they mean the same thing in, English, in American English. In other, some other languages they don't, but I use liberty and freedom interchangeably. Liberty did not suddenly enter the American vocabulary, of course, in 1776. In fact, few words were as ubiquitous in the transatlantic political discourse of the 18th century. Colonial America was heir to many different understandings of liberty, but today I want to focus on one element of 18th century political culture in both the colonies and Great Britain, the tradition of what was called the freeborn Englishman. Belief in freedom as the common heritage of all Britons and those in the British Empire like the American colonists and Britain as the world's sole repository of liberty had helped to legitimate the colonization of North America in the first place. Eventually it served to cast imperial wars between Catholic France and Spain and Protestant Britain as struggles between liberty and tyranny. British freedom celebrated the rule of law, the right to live under legislation to which one's community had consented, and restraints on the arbitrary exercise of political authority. But British freedom was anything but universal. It was nationalist, it was xenophobic, it was anti-Catholic, and it viewed nearly every other nation in the world as enslaved, whether to tyranny or barbarism or popery. Britain saw, and it didn't apply to everybody, Britons saw no contradiction between proclaiming themselves citizens of a land of freedom while British ships were transporting millions of Africans to bondage in the New World. The popular song "Rule Britannica said Britons never, 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 never will be slaves. It didn't say that Britons couldn't own slaves. And indeed, for most of the 18th century, nobody in Britain seemed to think that Africans were entitled to the rights of Englishmen. Nor was British freedom incompatible with wide gradations in the exercise of liberty at home. Britain was a hierarchical aristocratic society with a very restricted political nation that is those entitled to vote and hold office. Most 18th century commentators assumed that only certain kinds of people were capable of exercising the rights of freedom. And on both sides of the Atlantic, it was an axiom that those who were dependent on someone else economically or personally were incapable of participating in the full blessings of British freedom. Those who did not control their own lives uh, ought, not to have, uh, ought not to have a say in governing the state. Political freedom, in other words, required economic independence. This was a widely shared view, and of course it led to property qualifications for voting. Thomas Jefferson himself insisted that dependence, often quoted phrase, begets subservience and venality. It suffocates the germ of virtue. Therefore, property qualifications were ubiquitous in both the, United, the, the American colonies and the mother country. Defining freedom in terms of economic independence or property ownership drew a sharp line between those classes capable of fully enjoying the blessings of liberty and those who were not. In the 18th century, economic autonomy was far beyond the reach of most people in Britain, and even in colonial America with a much broader distribution of property, many were by that standard not truly free. Of course, the half million slaves who labored in the mainland colonies on the eve of independence were outside the circle of free citizens. Women, even free women, whose civic identity was subsumed with that of their husbands and fathers uh, had no opportunities for economic autonomy. In fact, the ideal of independence was defined as a masculine trait and dependence was was assumed to be the normal lot of women. Now, The struggle for independence transformed American society, not only into a republican government without a king, but into a nation that enshrined equality and opportunity as its raison d'etre and proudly proclaimed itself an asylum for liberty for all mankind. Fought in the name of liberty, the American Revolution unleashed public debates and political and social struggles that democratized and universalized this concept of freedom. On the road to independence, there was no word more frequently invoked than liberty. There were Liberty Trees, Liberty Poles, Sons of Liberty, Daughters of Liberty. There was an endless parade of pamphlets with titles like A Chariot of Liberty or Oration on the Beauties of Liberty. The latter, uh, which was a sermon by a Boston minister, became the most popular public address of the years before independence. Throughout the colonies, British measures like the Stamp Act for example in 1765 were greeted by elaborate mock funerals of liberty. These were carefully choreographed spectacles in which a coffin of liberty was carried to a burial ground only to have the occupant miraculously revived at the last moment whereupon the assembled multitude repaired to a tavern to celebrate. Americans during the Age of Revolution did not start out to transform the rights of Englishmen into the rights of man. As late as 1774, the First Continental Congress defended its resistance to British measures by appealing to what they called the principles of the English Constitution and the liberties of free subjects within the realm of England. But the coming of independence rendered the rights of free-born Englishmen irrelevant in America. And the deepening crisis inevitably pushed the the colonists to ground their claims in the more abstract language of natural rights and universal liberty. The idea of British liberty was transformed from a set of particular rights, which particular types of people could enjoy, into a set of universal rights with America as a sanctuary of freedom for all humanity. Ironically, it was an emigrant from the lower classes of England, who only arrived in America in 1774, who fully, first fully grasped this breathtaking vision of the meaning of American independence. It was Tom Paine, who in January 1776, in Common Sense, wrote, O ye that love mankind, stand forth. Every spot of the old world is overrun with oppression. Freedom has been hunted around the globe. Asia and Africa have long expelled her. Europe regards her as a stranger. England has given her warning to depart. And he ends, oh, receive the fugitive, the fugitive being liberty, and prepare in time an asylum for mankind. Six months later, the Declaration of Independence would legitimate the American rebellion not merely by invoking British efforts to establish tyranny over the colonies, but by referring to the natural, unalienable rights of mankind, among which liberty was second only to life itself. In the Declaration, it was the laws of nature and of nature's God, not the British Constitution or the heritage of English freedom that justified independence. The idea of liberty as a natural right became a revolutionary rallying cry, a standard by which to judge existing institutions and a justification for their overthrow. No longer a set of specific rights, no longer a privilege to be enjoyed by people in specific social circumstances, liberty had become a universal open-ended entitlement. And the contradiction between the ideal of universal liberty and the reality of a society beset with all sorts of inequalities would bedevil this country during the revolution and long, long thereafter. So if the roots of American freedom lay in the traditions of the freeborn Englishman, its emergence as a new and distinct ideology grew out of the struggle for independence itself and the creation of a nation state that saw itself in James Madison's words as the workshop of liberty to the civilized world. So from the very beginning, devotion to freedom formed the essence, the essential basis of American nationalism. This was a st- the revolution was not only a stunning repudiation of imperial authority inspired by this liberty, but it also unleashed challenges to inherited structures of power at home. Here too, the notion of liberty could become a, 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 you know, a, a justification for, for attacking the established order. Jefferson's seemingly matter-of-fact assertion in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, announced a truly radical principle whose full implications no one could anticipate. In British North America, a well-ordered society was thought to depend on obedience to authority, the power of rulers over their subjects, of husbands over their wives, of parents over children, masters over servants, slave owners over slaves. Inequality had been fundamental to the social order in the colonial world, but the revolution in many ways made these inequalities illegitimate. Henceforth, American freedom would inextricably be linked with the idea of equality, at least for those within the circle of free citizens. In this egalitarian atmosphere, long-established relations of dependency and long-established forms of unfreedom suddenly seemed illegitimate. In the end, of course, the revolution did not undo many of these inequalities. It did not overturn the obedience which male heads of households were entitled to from their wives, their children, or their slaves. But for free men, the democratization of freedom was rapid and dramatic. Nowhere more so than in challenges to the traditional limitation of political participation to those who owned property. Throughout the colonies, elections became freewheeling discussions of the fundamentals of government in which annual elections, universal manhood suffrage, religious toleration, even the abolition of slavery were debated not only by the educated elite but by artisans, small farmers, laborers now emerging as a self-conscious element in politics. The struggle for independence galvanized participation by hundreds of thousands of those previously outside the political nation. Every poor man, claimed a Maryland writer, has a life, a personal liberty, and a right to his earnings. Therefore, voting should be a universal entitlement, not a privilege. The suffrage, he said, was a right essential to and inseparable from freedom. Property and political freedom continued to be linked for a good while. But for many Americans, rather than property serving as a requirement to qualify for freedom, freedom was now imagined as a form of property, a personal possession. The idea that property included ownership of yourself helped to democratize the political nation. If all free persons had property in their own selves and their own rights, then there was no logical reason why all should not participate in government. So the debate over the suffrage, of course, continued for decades and the process of democratization did not run its course for white men until the age of Jackson and for women and non-whites much longer. But even during the revolution, this process had a profound effect on the prevailing definitions of freedom. In the popular language of American culture, if not in law, freedom and the right to vote had become interchangeable. Henceforth, political freedom meant an individual's right to participate in government, to participate in voting. Now, in economic as well as political affairs, the revolution redrew the boundary between the free and the unfree. In colonial colonial America, slavery was one less-than-free system among others. In the generation after independence, with the rapid decline of indentured servitude and apprenticeship and the transformation of paid domestic service into an occupation for women, these halfway houses between slavery and freedom disappeared, at least for white men. Americans of the revolutionary era therefore had to probe not only the definition of freedom, but the means for its preservation, what I call the social conditions that make freedom possible, the economic meaning of freedom. When Jefferson substituted the pursuit of happiness for property in the familiar Lockean triad, life, liberty, and property, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that opened the Declaration of Independence, he tied the new nation's star to an open-ended democratic process by which individuals develop their own potential and seek to realize their own life goals. Individual self-fulfillment would become a central element of American freedom. And and if ownership of property was necessary for that, then ownership of property became for many not a boundary excluding people from politics, but an entitlement, something the government ought to guarantee to people. Jefferson himself believed that to lack economic resources was to lack freedom. Jefferson favored a limited state, but he also believed government could help create freedom's institutional framework. Jefferson proposed to award 50 acres of land to every person of full age who did not already possess it. That would be a way of, that government could enhance the liberty of its subjects. The idea that personal and political freedom required an economic underpinning would survive to the end of the 19th century and indeed in the 20th century would reappear in the belief widespread until recently that some form of economic security was an essential element of American freedom. So the revolutionary era uh, gave rise to new definitions of freedom. And another one was freedom as a set of prerogatives ensured against governmental interference. Now, the identification of freedom with rights, to use a modern phraseology, of course derived from British tradition, but it too was transformed by the revolution. Today, when Americans are asked to define freedom, if you have a public opinion about what is freedom, people instinctively turn to the Bill of Rights. which was ratified in 1791. They mentioned the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, often the first things they, they discuss. But at the time of its ratification, the Bill of Rights aroused rather little interest or enthusiasm. James Madison, the father of the Constitution, believed the Bill of Rights redundant or pointless. Parchment barriers to the abuse of authority, he said, would prove least effective when most needed an observation amply borne out in times of popular hysteria later on, such as the Red Scare of World War I or the McCarthy era of the 1950s. Once again, the, the history of our freedom is not simply a straight line from the Bill of Rights of the present, but a more complicated story. It wasn't until the 20th century that the Bill of Rights came to be revered as a quintessential expression of American freedom. Nonetheless, the Bill of Rights in the Revolution period did subtly affect the language of liberty. It initiated a long process whereby freedom came to be discussed in this vocabulary of rights. The idea, for example, of free speech as a personal individual right was a radical departure. The term free speech had traditionally meant unrestrained discussion in Parliament. It was for lawmakers to criticize the king or the governor and not be punished for that. It referred to legislators' immunity from prosecution for statements made during debate, not the right of citizens to criticize the government. Even Jefferson, who fervently believed, as he wrote, that liberty depends on freedom of the press, also insisted that those who misled the public by printing, quote, false facts should be liable to punishment. So again, the legal implementation of these rights remained to be worked out. But the Bill of Rights did, mu- did do much to establish freedom of speech and the press as cornerstones of the popular understanding of American freedom. And one other remarkable change in this era was the constitutional recognition of freedom of religion. Now, Colonial America had numerous religious denominations, Quakers, Moravians, Anglicans, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Catholics, Jews, Baptists, etc. But even colonies like Rhode Island and Pennsylvania, which had a long practice of religious toleration, um, didn't have a fully worked out theory of religious freedom. Nowhere, in addition, in British North America did the complete separation of church and state exist. On the very eve of independence, Baptists who refused to pay taxes to support congregational ministers in Massachusetts were being put in jail. They, they complained. This is 1774. While our country are pleading so high for liberty, they are denying it to their very neighbors if they didn't support the established church. So as in other realms, the revolution transformed the meaning of religious liberty. The drive to separate church and state brought together deists like Jefferson, who wanted to erect a wall of separation, his words, that would free politics and the untrammeled exercise of the intellect from theological control, along with, and aligning them with members of evangelical sects who wanted the freedom to proselytize their particular religions without an established church to bother them. And indeed, throughout the new nation, established churches were disestablished, that is, deprived of public revenue and specific legal privileges. And the Constitution, of course, which contrary to much opinion in uh, Washington nowadays, the Constitution contains no reference to God. It's a purely secular document, It prohibits religious tests for federal office holders. It bars the federal government from legislating on the subject of religion. And in all these ways, it departed dramatically from both British and colonial practice. Under the Constitution, it was and remains possible as one critic at the time noted, quote, for a papist, a Mohammedan, a deist, even an atheist to become president of the United States. So this institutionalization of religious freedom was another way in which the revolution expanded and transformed the definition of liberty. In 1777, one member of the South Carolina legislature implored his colleagues. He said, yield to the mighty current of American freedom. And this current, as I've been arguing, swept away not only British authority, but the principle of hereditary rule, established churches, old limits to the political nation, and long-standing forms of inequality. But of course, in one critical area, the tide of freedom encountered an obstacle that that did not yield to its powerful flow. Freedom's antithesis, slavery, emerged from the revolution more firmly entrenched than ever in American life. And the rest of my talk is to try to explain how and why that happened. Because apart from liberty, the word most frequently heard in the legal and political literature of the 18th century was its opposite, slavery. In the 18th century, freedom and slavery were frequently juxtaposed as as what one writer called the two extremes of happiness and misery in society. Yet in the era's political discourse, slavery was primarily a metaphorical concept, a political concept. It was a shorthand for the denial of one's personal and political rights by arbitrary government. Those who lacked a voice in public affairs, declared one petition in 1769, were slaves. Now occasionally, colonial writers in the 1760s did make a direct connection between slavery as a reality and slavery as a metaphor. James Otis in Massachusetts, for example, insisted that freedom must be universal. What man is or ever was free, he wrote, if every man is not? Blacks, for Otis, were not allegorical figures whose status illustrated the dire political fate awaiting free Americans, but they were fresh flesh and blood British subjects, entitled, he said, to all the civil rights of such. But Otis was quite atypical. When most patriot leaders spoke of slavery, they meant the denial of self-government or dependence on the will of another not being reduced to a form of property. Such language was was employed without irony, even in areas where the majority of the population actually consisted of slaves. One writer in 1774 in South Carolina said that that colony was a sacred land of freedom and it was impossible to believe that slavery shall soon be permitted to erect her throne here, even though 60% of the population actually were slaves. Now, while, re- but while rarely mentioned explicitly, the proximity of hundreds of thousands of real slaves was intimately related to the meaning of freedom for the men who made the American Revolution. And this is one of the themes of my book, how freedom is always seems to be defined in terms of its opposite. Freedom requires a concept of slavery or later freedom is defined vis-a-vis Nazi Germany in World War II, or communism in the Cold War. There always seems to need to be an other who is the antithesis of what we think freedom is. And in the Revolution, the antithesis of freedom was slavery. In his famous speech to the British Parliament warning against attempts to coerce the colonies, Edmund Burke suggested that in the South, at least, familiarity with actual slavery made colonial leaders so sensitive to the threat of metaphorical slavery. Where freedom is a privilege, not a common right, said Burke, those who are free are by far the most proud and jealous of their freedom. Their devotion to freedom arose from the fact of slavery coexisting on their very doorstep. Now, Americans were not the only people to worship liberty and profit from slavery. In the ancient world, one element of freedom was the freedom to enslave others. In the 18th century, Britain, France, and Holland, countries where the idea of freedom flourished were all deeply involved in the Atlantic slave trade. And of course, British observers, although not above criticism on this ground, were fond of pointing out the colonists' apparent hypocrisy. The Declaration of Independence uh, inspired Thomas Hutchinson, the former royal governor of Massachusetts, to wonder how, quote, if these rights are so absolutely inalienable, how Americans justified, he wrote, depriving Africans of their rights to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But the fact is that slavery for blacks did not necessarily contradict white Americans' understanding of freedom. For many Americans, owning a slave offered a route to the very economic autonomy which was necessary to be a free person. This point was driven home by a 1780 Virginia law that rewarded veterans of the war for independence with 300 acres of land and a slave to secure their freedom. It also, it would be an infringement of liberty to relieve a man of his property, including slave property, without his consent. If government by consent of the the governed was the essence of political freedom, then to require owners to give up their slave property would reduce them to slavery. Nonetheless, by imparting so absolute a value to liberty and sweeping away many forms of partial freedom and positing freedom as a universal entitlement, the revolution inevitably raised questions about the status of chattel slavery in America. During the Revolutionary Era, slavery for the first time became a focus of public debate among people like Tom Paine and Benjamin Rush and many others. But most dramatically, it was the slaves themselves who appreciated that by defining freedom as a universal right, the revolutionists had unwittingly unleashed a weapon against chattel slavery itself. The language of liberty echoed in slave communities north and south. Living amidst freedom but denied its substance, slaves appropriated the patriotic ideology for their own purposes. The first concrete steps toward emancipation in this period came from freedom petitions, as they were called. Arguments for manumission presented to New England's courts in the early 1770s by enslaved African-Americans. Blacks recognized both hypocrisy and opportunity in this language of freedom. The most insistent advocates of freedom as a universal entitlement were African Americans who demanded that the leaders of the struggle for independence live up to their professed creed and extend the concept of liberty into this unintended realm. In 1775, the Provincial Congress of South Carolina felt compelled to investigate what it called the high notions of liberty that the struggle against Britain had unleashed among the slaves and throughout the revolutionary period petitions and pamphlets and s- sermons by blacks uh, chided the white patriots for failing to realize that every principle from which america has acted they said demanded emancipation for blacks blacks also sought to alter the language of politics by insisting that the nation understands slavery as a brutal reality not just a metaphorical condition For black slavery meant the denial of all the essential attributes of freedom, not just the lack of political self-determination. Now most slaves in the revolutionary era were only one or two generations removed from Africa. They did not need the ideology of the revolution to persuade them that freedom was a birthright. The experience of their own parents and grandparents suggested as much. In contrast to Edmund Burke, blacks believed that it was the slave, not the master, who genuinely craved freedom. My love of freedom, wrote the black poet Phyllis Wheatley in 1783. My love of freedom arose from the cruel fate of being snatched from Africa's shore. In other words, she didn't think it was ownership of slaves which made you believe in freedom. It was the experience of losing your freedom which made you love freedom. By invoking the revolutionaries' ideology of liberty to demand their own rights and defining freedom as a universal entitlement, blacks demonstrated how American they had become even as they sought to redefine what American freedom, in fact, represented. So all in all, the revolution had a contradictory effect on American slavery and therefore on American freedom. Gradual as it was, the abolition of slavery in the north, which the revolution unleashed, drew a geographical line across the new nation for the first time separating free states and slave states. For many Americans, white as well as black, the existence of slavery would henceforth be recognized as a standing affront to the ideal of American freedom. In 1792, the painter Samuel Jennings of Philadelphia created a painting, Liberty Displaying the Arts and Sciences, and he included among the symbols of freedom, along with a liberty pole and a liberty cap and those things, he included a slave's broken chain as a symbol of freedom, identifying liberty with emancipation. (laughs) Certainly after the revolution, it was difficult to employ slavery as a metaphor without triggering thoughts of actual slaves. But nonetheless, the stark fact is that the revolution did not rid American society of slavery. And indeed, slavery was powerfully protected by the new federal constitution. And thanks to the natural increase in the slave population supplemented by the reopening of the African slave trade for 20 years until 1808, there were considerably more slaves at the end of the revolutionary era than there were at the beginning. Throughout the Atlantic world, the upheavals of this age of revolution posed a threat to slavery. In 1794, the French convention proclaimed abolition, only to see slavery restored by Napoleon later on. Emancipation was a goal of the leaders of independent Haiti and nearly all the Latin American liberators early in the 19th century. Only the United States, only in the United States, did the creation of a new independent nation state strengthen the institution of slavery. The British poet Oliver Goldsmith might well have been speaking of the revolutionary generation when he commented in his great poem, The Wanderer, on mankind's propensity, he wrote, to call it freedom when themselves are free. Now ironically, the very contradiction between the ideology of universal liberty and the stark reality of slavery reinforced a racial answer to the third problem that I referred to, that is who is entitled to liberty. We the people, the words that open the Constitution, describe those who, among other things, are to possess the blessings of liberty. Now one might assume that the people of the United States are those who live here but the text of the Constitution made it very clear that was not the case. There were plenty of people living here who were not part of the people of the United States. This debate unleashed by the revolution about who was entitled to American freedom continues to our own day and rumor has reached us in New York, it even agitates California to this very moment. For most of our history, American citizenship has been defined by blood or race or descent as well as by birth or political allegiance. And both of those definitions, Americanism by belief and Americanism by blood, can be traced to the earliest days of the Republic. Constituting the most impenetrable boundary of citizenship, slavery rendered blacks all but invisible to those imagining the new American nation. Already at this time, Americans were speaking of their country as a place where individuals of all nations were transformed into a new people, melted, as they said, into a new race of men. But the popular idea that the shared experience of fleeing tyranny in the old world for freedom in the new world automatically excluded Africans from the history of freedom. When the era's master mythmaker Hector St. John Crevacourt, Uh, posed his famous question, what then is the American, this new man? He answered, quote, he is a mixture of English, Scotch, Irish, French, Dutch, Germans, and Swedes. He is either a European or the descendant of a European. Now these words were were written at a time when fully one-fifth of the population, the highest proportion in our entire history, were Africans or their descendants, not Europeans at all. But slaves, as Edmund Randolph, the nation's first attorney general wrote, were not constituent members of our society, and therefore the language of liberty did not apply to them. So did blacks form part of the imagined community of the new republic, to borrow a famous phrase of Benedict Anderson? The evidence is not entirely all in one direction. The North's Emancipation Acts assumed that former slaves would remain in the country, not be colonized abroad, as Jefferson advocated, and during the era of the revolution, free blacks enjoyed at least some of the legal rights accorded to whites. Most of the new state constitutions, even in places like North Carolina, allowed newly emancipated black men to vote if they could meet property qualifications. But on the other hand, the first Congress in the Naturalization Act of 1790, offered the first legislative definition of American nationality in trying to determine who could come here from abroad and become an American citizen, another issue which still persists to this day. With no debate, Congress restricted the process of becoming a citizen to quote, free white persons. Thus, at the very outset of our national history, a nation that defined itself as an asylum for liberty excluded the vast majority of the world's population from partaking in the blessings of American freedom. For 80 years, only white immigrants could become American citizens. Blacks were added in 1870, but it was not until the 1940s, actually, that persons of Asian origin became eligible for naturalization. Race, which had long constituted one of many different kinds of inequalities in colonial America, now emerged as a justification for the existence of slavery in a land committed to freedom as a natural right. Man's liberty, John Locke had written, flowed from his having reason. To deny liberty to those who were not rational beings was not a contradiction. And increasingly blacks were viewed as deficient in the qualities that made freedom possible. The capacity for self-control, rational forethought, and devotion to the larger community. These were the characteristics that Jefferson in his famous comparison of the races in notes on the state of Virginia claimed that blacks lacked partly due to natural incapacity, he thought, and partly due due to the fact that the bitter experience of slavery had, quite understandably, he felt, rendered them disloyal to the nation. Jefferson also thought that slavery had a disastrous impact on the morals of whites, since, he wrote, the perpetual exercise of despotic rule over other human beings rendered self-control impossible. But Jefferson did not conclude from this that whites should be barred from citizenship, but he did draw that conclusion about blacks. He believed black Americans should eventually enjoy the natural rights enumerated in the Declaration, but in Africa or the Caribbean, not in the United States. By the 19th century, the idea of innate black inferiority, which was advanced by Jefferson as a suspicion only, he said this in his thing, it's a suspicion, It had matured by the 19th century into a full-fledged racial ideology which would become central to almost any definition of American nationality before the Civil War. So the revolution bequeathed a contradictory legacy to American history and traditions of American freedom. And nowhere to conclude was this more evident than in the millennial year, we're coming up to our own millennium so we can mention this, the millennial year 1800, when Jefferson rode to election as president under the slogan Jefferson and Liberty. Jefferson believed his victory, he called his victory the revolution of 1800, a vindication of the principles of freedom of speech and conscience against repressive measures such as the Alien and Sedition Acts passed under his predecessor John Adams. Yet that momentous year also witnessed not only a metaphorical revolution, but an attempted real one a plot by slaves in Virginia to gain their freedom, Jefferson's own state. Organized by a Virginia blacksmith, Gabriel, and his brother Martin, a slave preacher, the conspirators of 1800 evidently planned to march on the city from surrounding plantations and kill most of the white residents. Like other Virginians, participants in Gabriel's conspiracy spoke the language of liberty forged in the American Revolution. We have as much right, said one conspirator, to fight for our liberty as any men. Another likened himself to George Washington who had also rebelled against established authority to quote, obtain the liberty of his countrymen. This analogy carried the disturbing implication that American officials had now replaced the British as the enemies of liberty. If the Gabriel conspiracy demonstrated anything, George Tucker, a prominent Virginian, commented, it was that slaves possessed the love of freedom as fully as other men. The legislature's response, however, was to tighten controls over the black population and severely restrict opportunities for manumission. Did not closing the door to freedom violate the ideals of the revolution? Tell us not of principles, said a Richmond newspaper. Those principles have been annihilated by the existence of slavery among us. In March of 1776, just a couple of months before the Declaration of Independence, a Boston lawyer, Peter Thatcher, had identified the central dilemma confronting the new nation. Would the rising empire of America, he asked, be an empire of slaves or of free men? By the time the revolutionary era drew to a close, history had provided the answer. It would be both. And in some ways, we are still living today with the consequences of that fateful outcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, and as I said, if uh, let people take a second to uh, catch their breath or collect their thoughts, I'd be happy to respond to any questions or hear any comments that might occur to anyone.
4: Awesome. Over
3: here. Oh, I didn't see you with my peripheral vision. Hi. Sure. Um,
4: well, when you started, um, you mentioned uh, your, re- your upcoming election
0: for the Asian president in Gordon Wood, <laughs> right. and that sort of surprised me that you said that the food had a lot of comment. After listening to your talk, I said
3: we had more in common than Lincoln and Douglas.
0: Ah, well, actually, <laughs> in, in the aftermath of your talk, it seems to have like a great deal in common because you both basically are arguing the same narrative. He called it the radicalism of the American Revolution. And in both of your talks, it seems to me that even as you reflect that American freedom did not apply to everyone and qualify things by saying, at least for white men, um, and give sort of an afterthought to the fact that there were more slaves after the American Revolution. Nonetheless, you're arguing a very whig uh, narrative that doesn't seem very much different than the traditional meta narratives they criticized in the beginning. I'm wondering, yes, I, I can recognize that freedom is a dispersive construction, uh, it's a contested idea, it gets played around, and it doesn't necessarily uh, correspond to real conditions, but at the same time, in the aftermath of the Revolution, when not only does the United States a slaveholder republic, but property law becomes more patriarchal uh, when racism and the lines of race begin to harden. When American freedom begins for planters in the Southwest to rely on the dispossession of Native American people for their lands, how we can continue to argue a narrative of freedom when there seems to be such a preponderance of things arguing against that, or at least which say that freedom not just was accompanied by lack of freedom for other people, but was distinctly contingent upon that lack of freedom.
3: I thought that's what I said. Actually, you put it very—you uh, you put it very uh, clearly. Um, I, I'm not—I'm not going to comment. Uh, Professor Wood will be here in three weeks, so you can ask him what he thinks. Um, I think we do share a lot in our view of the revolution as a as a movement which threw up this egalitarian ideology and challenged the legitimacy of numerous restrictions on rights and liberty and equality which had existed before, but I think where we differ is precisely on the point that you just made. I do not, uh, Gordon's book, um, The uh, Radicalism of the American Revolution, which is a very fine book, won the Pulitzer Prize, et cetera, um, is, I think, guilty of bracketing the South all the time. Every generalization he makes ends with a little thing, except the South, except the South. Now, since the South was running the country, and virginia was the largest state and most of our except the south is not really a, a you know that that is a big exception I thought I had argued exactly what you said, that, uh, that my view is actually freedom and slavery are symbiotically rela- related. It's not that this is an exception to a narrative of freedom. It's that the narrative itself is far, has to be complicated and problematized to see the concurrent growth of freedom and slavery simultaneously and their interaction with one another. And if one continued, as I do in my book, the story into the 19th century, what you said, of course, is true as I said at the end, racism becomes more and more entrenched, which is certainly not a Whiggish view of 19th century history. Um, and many other, and, and the dispossession of Native Americans of course contributes to that as you, as you suggested. So I, I do not uh, want to propose a Whiggish, uh, for those who aren't uh, uh, historiographers, what we mean by a Whiggish narrative is just one which sort of, it, it's sort of an upward trend of progress constantly, you know, everything sort of things start perfect and then they get better and better as you go along. <laughs> but um, uh, not at all, not at all. Uh, things go backward as well as forward, as well as uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, you probably know this quote, said after the, after the, civil, after the civil War, revolutions may go backward. And uh, freedom has gone backward in this country many times, as well as going forward many times also. Also, I don't actually think, and I will stop, because that Gordon it would put uh, as much emphasis as I do, and let us say, on the slaves themselves pushing forward the notion of freedom. I think his cast of characters is uh, somewhat different. Nonetheless, I, I don't wanna give a campaign speech since I'm running against him. Uh, and he's a worthy, a worthy candidate for president of the AHA. Yes? Um, I'm gonna ask a, a less intellectual question, a more emotional question. I'm a
5: public high school teacher and I deal uh, with these same themes on a different level with uh, high school students. And to talk about Thomas Jefferson and Madison to address some of these same issues and to use their language and talk about the contradiction between their language and slavery. Um, how do you deal with this even yourself on an emotional level, on an intimate level? To so talk to students and raise these issues in a US history class and a public, classroom, public school classroom where you're, in some way, uh, communicating what it is to be an American. Uh,
3: How do you take on this lecture? Well, that's a very, very good question. And uh, this is a question all historians, whether they are teaching in a high school or a college or a graduate center or something, have to grapple with. In a sense, you're asking, what is the purpose of studying history anyway? And uh, in the last decade, there have been very, very Uh, vocal public debates about this. Leon mentioned uh, a a low point of that when I debated Pat Buchanan on Crossfire. Um, (laughs) There have been some uh, more uh, elevated uh, discussions as well. Um, But, uh, uh, you know, there, there have been a lot of demands for a more uplifting version of American history Uh, The criticism of the national history standards was that it was too depressing and and too fragmented and it didn't give this narrative, whatever you want to call it, a narrative of progress and without, you know, nobody today says, hey, you shouldn't mention slavery. I mean, people are aware that there are uh, these uh, less uh, admirable sides of our history, but that history should instill a common sense of culture and a common sense of identity in a fairly diverse and uh, heterogeneous society. And that really the role of history is to prepare people for citizenship and a national, national identity and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's the kind of history I was taught when I was growing up uh, in the 1950s. I mean, we studied things like how a bill becomes a law. You know, so then thinking back on it, we never heard about lobbyists somehow. There was all these committees and everything, but how bills really become laws no one ever mentioned but um... anyway uh... you know i i think that college students high school students are capable of uh, appreciating complexity i think it is as wrong to treat Jefferson only as a slave owner, that's the only thing you know about Jefferson, as it is to treat Jefferson as the author of the Declaration of Independence and his the fact of his slave owning as a sort of side issue or a footnote. I think the the problem is to to instill in students a sense of the complexity of the past, the, the ambiguity of all of these things, the contested nature of these values that we have like freedom and equality, that they're not just things given down from on high but are, but are the product of many struggles and many different people's conflicting aspirations and uh, attitudes. And um, now that is not instilling a patriotic citizenship. But I don't think that's what history should be doing. I think if people are patriotic, it's because they love their country from for, for other reasons, not because their history teacher tells them to do so. And um, you know, it's, I know it's not easy. I admire people who teach in high schools immensely. I think you have a much harder job than we do in a college, absolutely. But I don't think our job is to just tell students uh, a pleasant story, which. Will uplift them psychologically and make them into good citizens. I think they will understand the fact that this is; these are two sides of the same story. That's really the key thing. Yes. From the time
4: the colonists landed and put a drop until the founding fathers started to write the Constitution, the colonists were living cheap and job with the American Indians. Now, during the discussions
3: well, of course uh, you 're quite right the, the, the Native Americans were cons were there, they were a presence, uh, they have, were interacted with. Uh, I fear that the answer is probably not much consideration. Uh, the Constitution does mention i may, i said before the, who are the we, the people in the constitution? The Constitution actually lists three different populations living within the borders of the United States. There are the people, and then there are the Native Americans who are dealt with as members of separate nations to be dealt with by treaty and not part of the we the people of the United States. And then there are the slaves or the other persons who are also kind of outside the boundary. I, I think that the, uh, although this, his, the story is very complicated, it can also be boiled down to a fairly simple you know, problem that the colonists wanted the land which the Indians had and constantly pushed them further west as best they could. But from another side, Native Americans, at least in my reading of the literature, and I don't claim to be an expert on this, didn't actually pick up this language of liberty nearly as powerfully as slaves did. Um, and didn't have, they're not really part of my narrative, not because of lack of respect for them, but because their aspirations didn't actually have a very powerful impact on this overall story of American freedom. Uh, Whereas the struggles of many other groups, whether it's immigrants or or women or or blacks or others, did fundamentally transform the the, the notion of freedom. my reading of the literature suggests that they, are, they were both outside the colonists' mental universe on this issue and also outside, in a sense, the history of freedom uh, in, in terms of their impact. Yes, ma'am? Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm glad you both are going
5: to be
3: going into the 20th century. All the way up to the militia of Montana.
5: So, I guess I'm, I'm, uh, I'm uh, the idea of freedom.
3: ah, uh, well, yes and,
5: and, uh, so, so somehow the idea of is being turned into being able to buy the product you want on marketplace um, and, but uh, what I do want to ask you is to comment on, on something that I, I heard Lane Bernard say which is that we, what's going on today is that we go to work and we spend, we all of us spend like eight hours a day at work, or I guess if you're a student it would be the same thing, and ourselves like you know we we're told what time to come, what to wear, who when to smile, who to smile, at, what to say. And then we go home and we give up our sense, of, we have a sense of ourselves as sort of natural, our natural liberty, but we leave that, but we don't think do, that we should have to we we have the right to carry that into our workplace. And then when we go home it, it does we don't pick it up again. Basically she her worry is that if you that if you that, that that kind of tyranny of the, of, of the workplace is turning the citizenship into people who have lost their
3: sense of, of their mm-hmm. financial freedom. Yeah, well, you know, actually you have pinpointed, uh, this is, would be another lecture, but a, a major theme of how I deal with the 20th century. Freedom as the right to consume is, uh, you know, the, the consumption as freedom is a critical element of, you know, probably uh, the high point of that was the famous kitchen debate between Nixon and Khrushchev, you know, in 1959, where, where Nixon opened this American exposition in Moscow and gave the speech called, What Freedom Means to Us. And it was not about the Declaration of Independence or political liberty or anything like that. It was about the fact that there were 56 million cars in the United States and 22 million hi-fi sets. And that's what freedom was, the right to purchase all these things in the marketplace. and then he went on to say, we believe in ideals and the Soviets are materialistic, which seemed kind of weird. Um, but anyway, um, but you also, the way I would put, your, the second point you made in a somewhat different, la- the language I would use is that in the 19th century, this is grossly oversimplified, but in the 19th century, this notion of economic freedom or the conditions of freedom was focused on your role in production, owning land, owning a shop, your, you know, your work was the sort, the, the, the way you worked was your, was a measure of freedom and people who worked for wages were considered not to be fully free. In the 20th century, we have shifted over to your role in consumption. You don't expect to have a role in production anymore. You don't expect to have a say in how uh, you know, the corporation operates or whatever, the bureaucracy, the university, whatever, and um, you, uh, your freedom is, is, is exercised when you're not at work in your leisure time, in your weekend, at night, that's where you exercise freedom. So there's been this fundamental shift of the site in which freedom is, is enjoyed, really. It's, 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 a, it's a good point. Uh, I, I feel, I, I, Geraldine, I, I feel uh, I'm missing a lot of people, but uh, just being arbitrary. I mean, I'm not a big expert on labor law. I know uh, you know more about it than I do. I think this, but the two parts of your question are really related because the people to whom the the second tier of labor are non-white, basically, right? So, um, what we do about it is not a question for a historian. It's a question for a citizen, in a sense. You know, I mean, anybody should be concerned with that, whether you're a historian or a banker or a plumber or anything. Um, But one of the themes of my book is exactly your point how this constant changing of the boundaries of who is entitled to freedom and it's not I don't think it's fair to say that it's always racially defined there have been moments in our history like reconstruction or like the civil rights era when there was a tremendous expansion of these boundaries to try to incorporate people who had been previously excluded from these blessings of freedom Um, and then some of those things become permanent and some of them don't. And then there's a constriction again. But um, this has been a constant source of battle. And there is, in this whole debate over history, there is a whole demand, which one reads, that we, you know, teach history with this notion of the American creed, the right of all people to, to the equality and democracy and everything as the center. But... Um, You know, unfortunately, the American creed has often been racialized, as you say, and it has never, not not never, but at most, for most of our history, the entitlements which go along with whether citizenship or freedom have been racially defined. But the struggle against that is part of the whole history of freedom in this country, the struggle of Asian Americans, particularly on the West Coast, to gain the right to citizenship, for example, not just for those born here, but for those who immigrated. the struggle of Catholic immigrants in, in, to have their own schools and things like that, um, as well as of racial minorities of one kind or another. This is all part of this story of the history of freedom. So, all I can say is read, read my book. Uh, let me, uh, yes, sir. Uh, also
4: referencing your earlier work, um, could you comment on the role of the artist in terms of, as may say, Catalyst Awards, especially you could see the levelers Mm-hmm. In this guide, uh, in this discourse around liberty, the, you might say the uh, over-determination of this social force. Uh, yeah,
3: uh, well, well, the... the, the
4: secondary, 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 I'm sorry, go uh, uh, Also, as a high school history teacher uh, and English teacher, um, one of the things that always comes up is to be the original draft, which is the general, mm-hmm. but uh, the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, and maybe second, that is edited out, to be
3: slavery. Could you comment on it? Sure. Well, I'll start with that and then go back. Uh, uh, Jefferson included in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence a passage. You know, the Declaration of Independence, after the great principles of the beginning, is a list of uh, charges against King George III of various violations of the colonists' liberty, closing the port of Boston, and numerous other things. Um, one of the charges was he, the king, has. I don't know the exact words, but as sort of imposed slavery on an unoffending people, transporting them across the ocean to a tyranny worse than anything suffered. It's, it's a... You know, it's very good language uh, about the evil of slavery. It's somewhat disingenuous, some might say, in that it blames King George III for this, whereas it's the colonists themselves who've been importing all these slaves. But the the argument is, well, there were certain laws. Virginia did pass a few laws to restrict the the, the bringing in of slaves in the 18th century because there were too many of them, they felt. And the British, to make money on the slave trade, had vetoed those laws. But Jefferson did not believe in slavery. Now, Jefferson was was a slave owner who did not believe in slavery. Now, one can take that statement and do whatever you want with it. You can say he's a hypocrite. You can say he's tortured, he's schizophrenic. He... Jefferson knew that slavery was a violation of the principles he had put down and that the colonists were fighting for. He said in his private writings many times, you know, nothing is more certain than that these people are to be free. Uh, It's a fire bell in the night. There's a terrible fate awaiting our country. You know, all these famous writings of Jefferson, which no doubt he believed. He didn't do much of anything to get rid of slavery, hardly anything at all. And he believed that blacks should be colonized out of the country if they were freed. But he included, to put that clause in, even in the form of a criticism of King George III, was certainly a provocative measure and it was omitted because South Carolina and Georgia objected and said they would not. Their delegates said they would not go along with the Declaration of Independence um, if that phrase was in there. You could see this uh, acted out in song in the play 1776. If you ever get to see that. Um, but what was the first question? Oh, the artisans. Well, that is a long story, which perhaps we could talk about privately. Uh, artisans, as you know, small craftsmen, played a, a crucial role in demanding the expansion of political freedom and. Defining economic freedom as economic independence. And, they, and throughout this period, they played a very critical role in challenging limits on freedom as they understood it. Although, the other side of the story is more artisans in places like New York and Philadelphia owned slaves than any other group up until about uh, 1780. Uh, blah, 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 yes. Uh, you mentioned the relationship. Maybe you should stand so people can hear your question, okay?
5: You Backwards. How much of a throwback is the, the institution of
3: homelessness in America? To be homelessness. Well, um, in my book, I argue that during the uh, New Deal and subsequently this notion of economic security or what President Roosevelt called in the Four Freedoms speech, freedom from want, became a central element in the American definition of freedom. It is not the case that freedom has always meant what it seems to today. You know, no regulation, get government off your back, uh, not paying taxes, every man and woman for themselves. you know, that sort of thing. Um, That has existed throughout our history, but other very different themes of freedom have also existed. Um, But for reasons which I try to explain in the last chapter of my book, since the 60s, the very concept of freedom has been taken over, or one might say hijacked, if one wanted to, by conservative and libertarian elements and this uh, groups and this notion of freedom as economic security has basically washed out uh, completely. It's, it just doesn't exist anymore, really, in our public discourse. Um, when people talk about economic freedom, they mean they talk about it's the free market, the unregulated market. Homelessness is a to my mind, a serious problem in our country and a serious deprivation of freedom by almost any definition that I would use, I, I don't know what the history of homelessness is in this country, certainly in the late 19th century there were many so-called tramps or hobos who traveled the rails, there were people who didn't seem to have permanent homes or jobs and this was seen to be a problem in many communities. Many communities passed laws, vagrancy laws to keep these people out of their neighborhoods. Uh, so it's not a necessarily a new thing that there is a considerable population which doesn't have a permanent home. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, to my mind, it's, a, it's an affront. During the New Deal, Roosevelt also said that, you know, the right to a home is part of freedom. Um, uh, that, uh, you know, every person ought to have... home. even Herbert Hoover had said that in the wake of the Great Depression. Uh, every, the, he didn't like renters. He denounced people who rented as not free and said people who own their own homes are truly free. He said no one ever wrote a song like Home on the Range about a rented apartment. So... <laughs> But anyway, I don't mean to belittle this quite. but uh, so it, it, it certainly is an indication of this shift in the notion of freedom, which has occurred in the last generation. Yes.
4: Edmund Morgan has emphasized the obsession of Americans in the antidote with the social condition of poverty and the important state pass and uh, the need for independence. And you emphasize the constant juxtaposition of freedom and slavery. Is it possible that American liberty required since it was the first example of political equality district, and, and had
3: nothing concrete to find Well, that is Morgan's argument in a way, uh, uh, that in fact he says that Republican freedom, that is, the, the, a, a government in which, sort of a democratic government in which the whole population, at least the male portion of the population, has a right to participate in government, he said requires slavery, because If you assume that those without property aren't really fit for the lower orders, are not really fit for this, slavery solves the problem by just eliminating them from the body politics. So if you have a in a slave society, people can be free. That is those who are not slaves can really be free because they don't have to worry about the lower class uh, using political power to seize property or anything like that. Morgan's book, it, it, *The American Slavery American Freedom, is a very ingenious book, and it's most influential, one of the most influential books of the last generation. It does have a fairly serious problem, I think, in that it doesn't apply to the North at all. How could people in the northern colonies believe in republicanism and democracy, where they had slavery, but very, very minor, a uh, small institution, and where artisans and small laborers were, in fact, enfranchised? And so um, there, the question of the lower orders was not eliminated, and they, but yet they still uh, seem to believe in independence. And republicanism. So, Morgan's idea, I think Morgan's argument is true for the South as a description of what happened, but as an argument that you must have that excluded lower class to actually have democracy at all, I think it's not true. It doesn't work in the northern colonies. So, um, I I would think it needed to be a little bit uh, reevaluated. Yes, in the corner.
2: that really established the government. And the freedom was was given over to the government and the Bill of Rights was added as the freedoms that were left over so there would no no longer be a contentious argument between the populace, so to speak, and the government. Jefferson and Hamilton, all of those were establishing a government based upon the tenets of freedom and they uh, uh, subscribed black people as property. And that is why black people have such a tremendous definition in the concept of freedom, because they had to define themselves from a non-being into into something that was human and natural rights. Because the natural rights argument, had I understood it, had actually dissipated by the time of of emancipation. So that argument really was not inherent in the black codes so forth, that really were fundamental to establishing the vagrancy laws in this country came from boundary lines that uh, separated government's priority as being over uh, dominant over people that had no rights and were not defined within the constitutional frame. I
3: mean- well, the, you've, you, you, I mean, it's a good question. You've jumped from the revolution to the Reconstruction period in one one like sentence, so it's a little complicated, but um, ah, yes, it, it, all these things are complicated. The, um, the Constitution is a very interesting document and uh, well worth reading. Uh, the, it, it, slavery is certainly embedded and protected in the Constitution. On the other hand, there is no mention of race in the Constitution whatsoever. There, it, 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 there is nothing in the Constitution which prevents any state from recognizing the rights of black people, and indeed, some states did at that time. They could vote in many states at the time of the Constitution, free blacks, uh, if they met whatever the religious or property or other qualification was. Indeed, the anti-Whig trajectory is that in the 19th century, more and more northern states took the right to vote away from blacks, as Professor Litwack showed in his first book uh, some time ago. Um, There was sort of a downward trajectory. So it's, but the Constitution does not, prevent, it doesn't prevent women from having the right to vote either, or many rights. The rights in the Bill of Rights don't say anything about men, women, or anybody. Anybody is entitled to freedom of speech, freedom of the press, uh, according to that language. Um, But the fact is, of course, you're quite right that the assumption I mentioned this vis a vis the naturalization law, and the assumption was this is a white country, a white society, and a white population. And the presence of free black slaves are outside the boundary, and free blacks are always a kind of anomaly who don't quite fit because being free and black is somehow a contradiction in terms at that time. Um, but as I've said many times, what I find what is important to me is not only that, to say that, but to say how these groups then try to seize upon the very promise of the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or the premise of liberty and claim their own rights, and in doing so, transform the meaning of it for everybody. The Civil War emancipated the slaves, but it, trans- it also transformed the definition of liberty for every person in this country, not just for slaves. The 14th Amendment doesn't just apply to black people, it applies to everybody. And it changes the meaning of liberty for everybody in this country. And that's a, that process is a good example of how uh, the struggle of a group for their rights change. It's not just they're trying to get into a fixed thing. That struggle changes what freedom is for everybody. And that's, and, and be, but your point is absolutely right. Because African-Americans have been the most deprived in our history, they have made the greatest claims for freedom and in doing so, have forced the country to reevaluate what freedom is for everybody. That happened many times in our, in our uh, history. Yes? All right, two more questions, says Professor Litwack.
4: Where the United States is defining, for instance, the Internal Revenue Code as the District of Columbia or certain territories. You mentioned also the 14th Amendment. What they failed to teach involved law school. Despite <coughs> the fact that there are not one but two volumes dedicated to the exposition of the so-called 14th Amendment, which, had been properly ratified, would be the 15th, because the lawyer owned the legal press suppressed the original 13th Amendment by the 1870s. That you only entitled the
3: mobility to make the calls. Uh no, I don't. But what is the question? Let me just think that
4: US citizens are citizens of the District of Columbia.
3: You mentioned I'm I'm not quite really sure that that's true. I'm not a legal scholar, but uh I think the plain language the plain language of the Fourteenth Amendment is that it begins by saying any person born in the United States is a citizen of the United States and of the state in which that person resides. Yes, and my particular point is that whereas the Fourteenth Amendment, so called,
4: was declared, ratified in 1868, Right.
3: Uh, I'm going to have to in a minute, so. Uh, okay, well, let, let, let me, I, I think you've made your point because really we're looking for questions here, not, uh, okay, well, I think uh, this, this, this position is, is known now, so uh, thank you for, uh, all right, well, I, uh, that's, uh, don't deface that flag. Uh, uh, Newt Gingrich will be after you. Yes, let me take this gentleman here as a question, because we really are running out of time. Yeah. Let, let. Okay, th- thank you, sir. Let me. I think you've made your point. I'd
0: like to address the,
4: the concept of the meaning of freedom. Mm-hmm. It's been looked at mostly in a
0: material sense, economic opportunity, as you said, freedom of the right to consume. Maybe your insights on the concept of some sort of freedom of the mind, mm-hmm. psychological freedom addressing more of the middle class in terms of ideology, propaganda, consumerism, freedom.
3: Well, that's another long, uh, I, I would have to give you a very long lecture on that. It is certainly true that inner freedom, the freedom of the personality, the freedom to develop to the fullest potential of any, pr- of whether you're a man or woman or anybody, uh, is very important, it, you know it, it, that, that concept develops in the 19th century, Emerson, Thoreau and many, and then in the 20th, one can trace that all the way through the 60s, it's, it's another theme. I mean, there are many themes in a 50-minute lecture, one can only talk about some of them, so um, I guess we're finished, so let me just thank everybody for listening and answering <laughs> questions.